This week on Miranda Warnings, we're very pleased to have back Professor Ben Bonventry, Albany Law School's Justice Robert H. Jackson, Distinguished Professor of Law, and also publisher at New York Court Watcher. He recently has an article in the New York State Bar Journal entitled, Supremely Divided, The Court's Conservative Bent Intensifies. Welcome back, Ben. Always great to be with you and uh, Miranda Warnings. It's great to have you back. Uh, so you have the cover story on the New York State Bar Journal about the conservative bent of the Supreme Court. Um, you, I paid them to put it on the cover, Dave. You did? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's what sells. We go with what sells. Uh, we got we to gotta sell this magazine. Yeah. Um, you do a great job of providing empirical data, not just opinion, but empirical data, uh, about how the Supreme Court has changed uh, over the last year. What, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what your, your thought process here was on this uh, article and what your conclusions were? Sure. Well, let me preface whatever I say by, um, by saying this. You know, when I listen to commentary, I scratch my head and say, are, the, are these fellas, are they, are they actually reading all the opinions of the court, or are they just selectively choosing one or the other that's of interest to them? And then they write about that. So you read the commentary, and the commentary, some of the times, is completely contrary. Well, I'm a total nerd, so I actually read all the opinions. I read all the opinions. And when you read all the opinions, you know, like Daniel Patrick Moynihan used to say, you know, there are opinions, but you don't have your own facts. Well, the facts of the matter are that the United States Supreme Court has become increasingly conservative. And again, you know, as I've said before, Miranda warnings, I'm not talking about judicially active versus judicially restrained. They're all judicially active when they want to be and restrained when they want to be. I'm talking about how do they vote? Do they vote as if they were liberal democratic politicians or do they vote as if they were conservative Republican politicians. And when you look at the court that way, the court really is split. It's split quite dramatically. So that, of course, you have Sonia Sotomayor, Stephen Breyer, and Elena Kagan. You have them voting really just like liberal Democratic politicians in virtually all the cases. And then on the other side of the aisle, you have Alito and Thomas who are the most uh, far right on the court. But then also, of course, you have Gorsuch and Barrett. And the four of them, they vote like conservative Republican politicians. Now, we're not saying there's anything wrong about that. Maybe this is the wise thing to do. But there's no question about it. You have a divide in the court. It is sharp, right? And that's between social and political liberals and social and political conservatives and the conservatives right now, there are six of them, four of them that are very, very conservative and two more, uh, Brett Kavanaugh and the chief justice, right? John Roberts, who are certainly conservative, but not nearly as extreme as some of the others. Right. And, and you know, we've talked before about, you know, before uh, Amy Coney Barrett was on yes. the court and we had Ruth, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that uh, chief uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, was 
kind of the swing vote because although he had a conservative bent, he was very much uh, respected the institution and precedent and yes. sometimes would side with the with the liberal for even if um, he felt that it was not necessarily where he would come down. He had the respect for precedent and he became the swing vote. Now with Amy Coney Barrett, even if you put Roberts with the liberals, that's only four. So uh, does that make uh, Justice Kavanaugh the swing vote here on some of these close cases? You know, it's so fascinating that you asked that because when the court would decide a case on the social, political, liberal side, almost always it was because you had the three liberals. And remember, look, if there's a liberal side and a conservative side to the case, I mean, you know, you could bet on it that 90% of the time to 100% of the time, you're going to get Sotomayor, you're going to get Kagan, and you're going to get Breyer. Every once in a while, there's an exception, but you're going to get them. But to have a liberal result, you need two more. Sometimes you get Roberts with the liberals. But last term, what would happen is whenever there was a liberal decision, you would have Roberts with Kavanaugh joining the three liberals. And that's how you might get a five to four liberal decision or sometimes even a six to three if they could drag one of the other conservatives along. So you're absolutely right. It's is it Roberts or is it Roberts plus Kavanaugh or is it really Kavanaugh that's the swing vote? So you've taken a look at some of the uh, ideological voting patterns, some of the dissents um, from the 2021 term. Uh, you've you've found that the highest dissenter uh, in the 2021 term was uh, Sotomayor, uh, Justice Sotomayor. Um, now that's likely because the decisions were ultimately uh, more of a conservative bent. Is that correct? That's right. So if you look at who dissented uh, the most, who dissented the most, what you had was you had Sotomayor, Breyer and Kagan. You had the three liberals. They dissented the most. Who dissented the absolute least? You had Kavanaugh, Barrett and Roberts. Right. So you got the split there. You got, you know, the liberals dissenting the most and you have some of the conservatives dissenting the least. What's also interesting, however, is that the two more um, far right members of the court, Thomas and Alito, they were dissenting quite a bit more than, say, uh, Roberts, Barrett and Kavanaugh were, which shows you that, you know, the middle of the court, the ones that are getting the court most of the time, or at least were in the majority most of the time, really were Kavanaugh, Roberts, and also Barrett. Isn't that interesting? Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah, in the majority a lot. That, that is interesting. And you looked at, you did a comparison of uh, Amy uh, Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett's uh, opinions on uh, in criminal uh, matters, and you compared it to how you might expect uh, Justice Ginsburg to have voted in those cases. Um, where she, Justice Ginsburg, would have likely have uh, been in support of the the more liberal side of the uh, position. Um, and what what did you come up with? What did you find when you looked at a comparison of when you got to specific topics? Well, there were quite a few decisions last term where you had the three liberals voting together, right, and alone, 
And of course, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had been on the court, she would have joined the three liberals. I mean, there's no question about that, right? We're talking about what, yeah, all three liberals, you're gonna get Ginsburg as well if she's on the court. In those cases, Barrett would not have been, and she did not vote with the liberals. So her voting was much different as we expected from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In fact, if you look at all the cases that have a clear liberal versus conservative split, that is one side socially and politically liberal, one side socially and politically conservative. If you look at all those cases from the previous term and then the immediate past term, Ginsburg voted for the liberal side 96% of the time, 96% of the time. That same kind of cases, the same kind of cases, liberal versus conservative, it went from Ginsburg, 96% liberal, to Amy Coney Barrett, 24%. Or the other way, Ginsburg, only 4% of the time she saw any merit in the conservative side. Right. And Amy Coney Barrett, a, an, uh, a strong 76% conservative. So 4% to 76% conservative. Right. There you go. And, and that, that change uh, obviously was important in the 2021 term. Uh, it's probably going to be even more important in the, in the, the upcoming 21 and 22 Absolutely. term, which is, is already underway. And there's a couple of real uh, major cases that are coming through that we can I'd like to talk about and, and get your thoughts on. Uh, I think probably the, the one that's getting the most attention is uh, the uh, Mississippi abortion case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, um, to talk about uh, changing the 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 standard uh, for Roe v. Wade. Uh, what are your thoughts on on that case? Well, on that case, of course, if Ginsburg were on the court, we could be pretty confident that she would join the three liberals that are still on the court. So that would be four to throw out the Mississippi uh, restrictions on abortion. And it's very likely that Roberts would have joined with the liberals because Roberts, even though in the past he dissented against abortion rights, like you said at the outset, he's been very faithful to precedent and said, we've already decided these kinds of issues. And we ought not to be changing our decisions simply because we have a couple of new justices on the court. And in fact, justices that were placed on the court by President Donald Trump in order apparently to overrule abortion rights. So I think the case would have gone one way if Ginsburg were still on the court and then joined by Roberts and the other liberals. Now I think there's a darn good chance that the uh, abortion restrictions in Mississippi are going to be uh, upheld because you've got at least four and probably five very, very strong votes to say that Roe versus Wade abortion rights is completely illegitimate. Let me ask you this, though. It, isn't there another is there another path here, especially in the, the Mississippi abortion case, which uh, restricts abortions after 15 weeks and, and under Roe v. Wade? Uh, it's generally agreed to uh, go up to 23, 24 weeks. Um, so it's just a matter of weeks here. Is it possible that we could see the Supreme Court come down and say, 
look, we're not going to overrule Roe v. Wade, but we're going to say that Mississippi has the right to uh, restrict it after 15 weeks, kind of, uh, uh, you know, a, a split a little bit to, to kind of soften the blow to say we're not overruling Roe v. Wade, maybe to pull someone like Roberts into that decision, but say we're also going to say 15 weeks uh, it can be an, a proper limit. Yeah, I think that might actually be the most likely outcome in the case, and not just because of Roberts, but uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett has also shown herself to be quite measured with regard to precedent and not nearly being as willing as Alito or Thomas or Gorsuch to overturn precedent. So I think that's very that's very possible. They might say, look, the line with regard to viability changes all the time because of advances in science. So the 15 week that might be perfectly acceptable because it might be that many more unborn are actually viable by the 15th week. They could certainly do something like that. Now, of course, the Mississippi case is, is different than the uh, Texas law, which restricts it after six weeks. Six weeks. And, and sometimes those two cases might get confused because uh, there was... Uh, what's called a shadow docket decision uh, uh, recently uh, by the Supreme Court regarding the Texas case. So the Mississippi you're not, you're case, not allowed to you're not allowed to use the term shadow docket. I am. Lito says because we're going to bleep that nasty, out. That's just a nasty term. We're going to bleep that commentators out. Commentators have for what they do without oral arguments and without briefs and without signed opinions. Yeah, I know. We don't do we, really have that, he said. What do we yeah. call that if we don't call the shadow docket? What do we call it? A, a gray docket? A, 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 a censored docket? In in the shadows, I think. In the in the dark, in the alleys, in the dark alleys. I don't know. what. You yeah, so, but I, I want to distinguish between those two cases because uh, sometimes they could, they could be confused. The Texas case, uh, restriction after six weeks. And also, I think more significantly, provides a mechanism for a citizen to try to enforce uh, a violation of this law in the courts with a $10,000 bounty. And the Supreme Court uh, didn't decide on the merits, but on a procedural ground, uh, bumped it back, bumped it back and said they weren't going to address it. Uh, but now the Justice Department has filed a, 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 an appeal um, and so is, are we going to see something on the Texas case uh, this term? Well, I gather what's going to happen, what's most likely to happen is the court will render a decision in the Mississippi case, in the Mississippi case, and then maybe remand the Texas case and say, consider the Texas case in light of what we said in Mississippi. They oftentimes do that. Uh, you know, uh, if we can move on a bit, you know, there are two big cases coming out of New York. Yeah, I want to talk about them. Yeah, I want to talk about them. Yeah, one's the gun rights case. Yeah. There's another one where there's a petition for certiorari, and I have to acknowledge that I've been helping uh, the Catholic diocese with this. There's another one coming out of Albany, and that has to do with New York's mandatory abortion coverage. So if you're an employer and you're providing 
health insurance, you must provide coverage for abortions. Well, you can imagine the Catholic Church and other um, religious organizations uh, who believe that you know abortion is akin to murder, it's a sin. They don't want to be paying for coverage for abortion. Well, give us the name of that case, Vin. That case is the Roman Catholic Diocese of Albany versus Lacewell, I think it is at this point. But I just it, and the Supreme Court is still conferencing that case. And it looks as though they may join that case with another religious liberty case. That case is extremely important because that case involved, you know, employment division of yada, 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 Oregon versus Smith. That dreadful 1990 decision, majority written by Scalia, where he said strict scrutiny does not apply to free exercise of religion. We've never applied it to uh, free exercise of religion, which, of course, was a lie. And O'Connor called him out on it in a concurring opinion. Um, but as a result of that case, Oregon versus Smith, as long as there is an otherwise valid law, in other words, that law isn't unconstitutional because it abridges free speech or freedom of the press or right to counsel. As long as that law is otherwise valid, it makes no difference that it interferes with free exercise of religion, right? And so actually Congress immediately passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to overrule Oregon versus Smith. But the Supreme Court said that that new federal law does not apply to any state laws. So with regard to state laws, the only federal constitutional protection you have is Oregon versus Smith, which means none. And we already have uh, three votes at the United States Supreme Court, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, who want to get rid of Oregon versus Smith. And the Albany case, the abortion mandate case, may present precisely the kind of issue where the court must confront whether to get rid of Oregon versus Smith. And you're thinking this case might be paired with another uh, uh, religious uh, freedom case. Uh, are you thinking maybe the, the Carson versus Macon, the, the, the main case uh, from the state of Maine? Well, actually, th there is another case. And oh, Lord, you know, it's escaping me right now. But it's another case in which uh, the, the petitioners are specifically asking, you want to reconsider Oregon versus Smith? It's not that, but the Carson case is absolutely fascinating because that's a case in which you have Maine providing tuition assistance um, for uh, students who were going to private schools. They do that because, you know, the population of Maine is so sparse that in, in much of Maine, there are no public schools. So what they do is they help parents and students go to private schools. The question in this case is, what about a student who is going to a religious school where uh, that student will re receive religious instruction? Right. Maine doesn't want to pay for religious instruction. Right. Now, so in, so in, in the Maine case, because of the scarcity of the schools, Maine will actually pay the parents even if they're sending the, to, if they're sending their kids to private school. Uh, they'll pay, help pay the, the tuition. Um, but they're saying if it's a, a school that it's a religious school, they're not going to pay. You can still they're, go, obviously, but you're not going to get the money. Right. And if we were talking about several decades ago, I think this would be an easy case. Yes, Maine is within its rights to refuse to 
financially support religious instruction because of the non-establishment principle of the Constitution, separation of church and state. But the current court, the view is that when there is a state that's insisting on this kind of separation of church and state, the current court, a majority, views that as discrimination against religion. In other words, as in this case, all the private schools, all the students who want to go to any private school, they get tuition assistance. But God forbid you want to go to a religious school, you don't get tuition assistance. The current court of majority views that as discrimination on the basis of religion. And I'm pretty sure that's the way the court is going to rule in this case. And we've got a we've got a line of thinking, though, I think, coming from, you know, Justice Thomas, that, uh, you know, the establishment clause that says uh, separation of church and state actually doesn't apply to states. Right. That's is it like he, it's separation of church and state? But according to him, states don't aren't counted under that. Right. Well, actually, that's not as crazy as it may sound, because the non-establishment provision in the First Amendment was intended to be a protection of states to keep the federal government out of the religious business of the states. It, as you know, the First Amendment does not apply to the states. It's the 14th Amendment that applies to the states. The First Amendment and with regard to non-establishment, it was to say to the federal government, anything regarding, right, relating to religion, stay the heck out of it. So leave the states alone. So Thomas certainly has some originalist merit to that. On the other hand, he doesn't say the same thing about the Second Amendment, which was also a protection of the states to allow the states to have militias so they can protect themselves against the possible tyranny of the federal government. So on that, he doesn't view the Second Amendment as a protection for the states, and therefore it's ridiculous to apply the Second Amendment and say there's a gun right against the states, but he does do that with regard to the non-establishment clause. Well, that's, that's an awesome segue into our next case, which is a Second Amendment case, um, the New York State uh, Rifle and Pistol Right, that's the other New York case. Big yeah, New it's York a big case, New York yeah. case. It's a big Second Amendment case. I think it's going to be a very significant case. And uh, it's really, um, you know, the issue is whether uh, in New York, uh, it's you can't have a handgun outside of your home without a license. You can have it within your home. Um, and when you apply for a license to have it outside of your home, New York State requires that you, you have proper cause. And in this case, uh, the, the individual who, who sought it, uh, sought the license, said it was for self-defense. Um, and uh, the New York State uh, agency said that that wasn't sufficient. So um, this is going to be, as you said, an issue of how far uh, do the protections of the Second Amendment go? Yeah, this is, the, this is the first time the court is actually tackling a uh, gun rights issue, right, since the court made uh, individual gun rights applicable to the states, right? And in this particular case, the, the real wrinkle in this is that the New York courts have been saying, and the New York, whatever the agency is that says whether you can get a license or not, 
it says you must have a special need. So proper cause means special need. So if you want to defend yourself against all this crime that's going on in the streets, well, that's a concern everybody has. It's not particularly special to you. And therefore, your license is denied. Your application for a license is denied. And of course, if you believe in a strong individual right to bear arms, you've got to believe that this is a drastic infringement upon that right. right? And so New York ought to lose. And uh, I suspect there's good reason to believe New York is going to lose in this case. Well, I mean, just on its face, uh, proper cause is, is what's required. Uh, Self-defense is not proper cause, apparently. It does seem... Well, somewhat, according to New York, it's not yeah, proper seems, cause. It does seem a little vague to deny someone of their constitutional right. Um, it seems vague. Yeah, I agree with cause? you. And I, I think there are at least five votes on the court to say exactly that. Yeah. And so this is, this is another case where I think uh, we're going to have to look at how it's, uh, you know, how it's written. It's going to be very, yes. very uh, interesting. I mean, they could just say, look, the New York, New York law is unconstitutional. Um, and then they could go on to the next step and say, you can't put any prohibitions on, on this. Or they could say, look, you're allowed to put prohibitions on it, but you got to be a little clearer than just proper cause uh, without any definition. And I think we might end up in, again in that middle ground where they say, look, you can put restrictions. We're not ruling the whole thing out, but you got to be a little clearer. Yeah, I think that I think that actually is the most likely outcome. So New York, you're allowed to put some restrictions on it, uh, but uh, you can't basically say, look, unless you've got some very, very particularized reason for having a, a gun, for wanting to carry a gun outside your home, you know, you're denied your gun rights. I, you know, I can't imagine they're going to uphold that. Right. I mean, because you, you've got to be able to have restrictions like if they're uh you know, some sort of violent. Sure, criminal, it's a felon, somebody's dangerous, you can't trust this person. Of course. Yeah, those might be a legitimate restrictions, but New York has gone way beyond that. So uh, what else are you seeing as uh, a you know a big case in the in the Supreme Court in in this upcoming term? There <laughs> there is the uh, the Boston flag case. Now apparently in Boston. Uh, the city hall has these flagpoles and individuals and organizations are allowed to petition city hall and say, we'd like to um, have our flag raised on one of your flagpoles for a day or a week. So LGBTQ groups, city hall says yes. Turkish American group, city hall says yes. We love the Boston Red Sox. City hall says yes. We want to put a Christian cross flag up. Now you can't do that because that's religious, right? Because that's religious. Now, on the one hand, is discriminating against religion? Well, no question about it. It is distinguishing between secular flags and clearly religious flags. Are they allowed to do that? Well, they might be allowed to do that if City Hall can convince five justices that when a flag is raised in a City Hall on a City Hall flagpole, 
That is city hall speaking. That is the government speaking. And the government is allowed to say whatever it chooses and refrain from saying whatever it doesn't want to uh, want to say. So you're going to have government is a government speech. And that's probably where the liberals are going to go. And you're going to have this is discriminating against religion because everybody else gets their flag up except for the Christians that want the cross up. Well, that's a big I, case. I think that's a big case. Yeah, that that is a that is a big case, and you know you've got to think the the city should have some discretion as to what they put up. I mean, you said that, you know they would agree to put up a Red Sox flag, but I, I'm guessing they would be opposed to a Yankees flag, uh, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, right? I mean, so they're allowed to make that choice. Well, you know, there was a case coming out of Texas a few years ago, and. Uh, the case ended up with a major, a bare majority of the court saying it was government speech. Now, Texas didn't want, well, the Texas DMV ultimately decided after there were a lot of protests that they were not going to allow vanity plates with the Confederate battle flag on it, okay? Apparently, any other kind of vanity plate was approved, including in Texas, go Giants beat Cowboys. So. <laughs> A majority of the court, the liberals, of course, right? They said government beach. What Texas is allowed to put on their license plates what they choose to put on their license plates. Alito, in dissent, says, "Give me a break. You think Texas is speaking when somebody, when they allow somebody to put on their license plate, Giants beat Cowboys, or I'd rather be fishing than working, or the hell with work, right?" So. So I think you're so in this case, the, the, this flag case, you're definitely going to have government speech are you, or are you discriminating against religion? Of course, the other thing is the First Amendment itself does discriminate against religion. It number one, it protects religion, free exercise of religion. But then it says no, it says no establishment of religion. It doesn't say no establishment of baseball teams, no establishment of music, no establishment of our favorite podcast host, it doesn't say that. It just says non-establishment of religion. So the First Amendment itself differentiates between religion and everything else. Well, maybe we'll get the Miranda Warnings flag flying at in Boston. <laughs> We're non-sectarian. So um, there's another case that that I, uh, I want to get your thoughts on. It's already, uh, it hasn't been decided, but it, it, there was an argument in U.S. v. Zabaida, uh, that was the uh, the uh, case regarding uh, some uh, 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 clandestine CIA activities and torture. And uh, in that case, they sought discovery from some uh, third party contractors to the CIA and the CIA withheld that information on uh, uh, reasons of harm to national security um and you know the 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 proponent in that case said well look we need the information and they said well we can't give it because that's going to disclose some you know top secret cia information about even where the 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 act occurred could expose people which is a really good argument um what do you uh and then there was arguments on this and and the justices came up with a uh, an alternative plan. What do you think of that case? Well, 
On the one hand, the alternative is to have the individual who is actually tortured, right? That individual testify. And I think that will be allowed. I think if I'm not wrong, I think the Biden administration already said, yes, he can testify. The question, however, is whether or not the private contractors, right. the private contractors are to be covered by the law that protects national security secrets. That's the real technical matter uh, on the case. And of course, it's going to be very, very important whether this, this is allowed. I mean, is the, is the Supreme Court going to make a distinction between employees, right, as opposed to uh, contractors, independent contractors, uh, like courts making all kinds of employment level uh, decisions? Are they going to do that? Or are they going to say, give me a break? It's still a threat, a risk, a danger to the national security, whether it's a private contractor or if it's somebody who actually is an employee of the government. You know, so uh, I would imagine that way. I don't know, you know, myself, I don't understand what the difference is. If it's a contractor and there happen to be secrets and the uh, disclosure of those secrets would endanger the government and would endanger other government agents. I don't know. I don't understand why that shouldn't be protected as well. Well, I would say if it's if it's really that important to national security, maybe we should keep it within the government, and maybe it, it, it shouldn't be going out to third parties that are not part of the government. If it is really, I, I, no problem with with hiring people out, but if it's that top secret. Shouldn't it stay within the government? You would right? you would think so, or at the very, very least, then you have, an, you know, at the trial level, you have an in-camera hearing and you have the judge, like just like the judge did, you know, with the Pentagon Papers case, you have the judge uh, examine what these secrets might be and make a determination whether it really is a threat to national security or it's just going to embarrass a prior right. administration. Right. Oftentimes, you know, administrations throw this national security. Oh, it's a compelling interest. And you find out the national security is they really don't want to be embarrassed. You know, right. so that's really possible. Right. Well, I guess if you don't want to be embarrassed, then you shouldn't be hiring third party contractors. To that's do, right. That's to, right. Do the dirty work. What about the Ted Cruz case? You know, about yeah, the, the Ted, Ted Cruz. Cruz case. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> the constitutionalist. Oh, yeah. What a what a crock. This case is. Uh. What a just what a crock this case. Yeah, is. so he think. lends his own campaign two hundred sixty thousand dollars, and then at the end of the campaign, he wants the loan paid back, but under the campaign finance restrictions, only two hundred fifty thousand uh, can be paid back to him. So of course that's why he lent two hundred sixty thousand. So he's now out of ten thousand which means he's got standing because he's personally injured to the tune of 10,000. And he's saying that this restriction under which he loses $10,000, he can't get his $10,000 back. Uh, he's saying that's a violation of his uh, free speech, which, you know, I just love these so-called constitutionalists, these textualists who say abortion rights isn't in the constitution. Homosexual sodomy is not in the constitution. Campaign finance is in the Constitution. Money is in the Constitution. Giving money, paying money is speech. Is, I mean, I think Jimmy Madison knew exactly what he meant by the word speech, right? He didn't say expressive activity. Only his, only his mother called him Jimmy. 
Yeah. <laughs> now I'm not I'm not arguing for textualism. All I'm arguing is that you got to be some heck of a hypocrite to be arguing all the time that you're a constitutionalist, a strict constructionist, a textualist, and all these other rights you don't like are not mentioned in the Constitution, so they don't exist. But you know, money, paying money, you know, that somehow is speech. Yeah, you know, right. but he's as probably going to win. He's probably. I know. Gonna I was going to say, as much as I as I don't like this case, um, I mean, there is precedent for uh, support that money is speech, right? Well, yeah, and uh, to tell you the truth, you know, my liberal buddies don't uh, like to hear this, but you know, I agree with that. I mean, if the money is to pay for some kind of a political communication, I think the paying of money is a necessary. Uh, incident of speech, of expressive activity and pure political speech and expression. So I think actually spending money for a political communication ought to be protected by the First Amendment. But I sure as heck don't say I'm a textualist. Right. But but look, I mean, we've got we've got restrictions and all kinds of campaign donations. Right. I mean, state and, and federal, Absolutely. there's there's campaign, there's limits. So why should suddenly it be unlimited? For certain no, it shouldn't people. be unlimited. Nothing's unlimited. Right? Absolutely but, nothing's but unlimited. But we put a two two hundred fifty thousand. Seems like all that's a lot of speech. Yeah, and the court might well. I'm not sure, but the court might well uh, rule that way. Okay, yeah, fifty two hundred fifty thousand is more than enough. Once you get beyond that, you really start getting into the problem of the the risk of corruption. The risk of corruption. I mean, suppose sure. somebody lends a million dollars. They're probably going to want something. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And what bothers me about this case is that Ted Cruz, uh, you know, deliberately uh, spent the $10,000 more than the limit uh, just so he could uh, bring this case. Yeah, but, you know, public interest groups do a similar kind of thing to get cases before the United States Supreme Court. You know, they'll find a client somewhere right. or they'll create an issue. You know, or they'll find an issue somewhere in some small town in who knows where, you know, where, you know, some nun was denied some right because somebody said separation of church and state. And they bring, you know, systemary grace before the Supreme Court and everybody melts because she does nothing but dedicate her entire life to helping the sick and the poor. Come on. They do that all the time. Right. And and. Professor Vin Bonventry does nothing else but help enlighten all of us about uh, <laughs> legal issues. And uh, we couldn't be happier to, to have you uh, back on with us at Miranda Warnings to talk about these really fascinating topics. Isn't it great? Vin, it's just great. Yeah, it's great to have you now. Love you that. always grace us. We, we have a feature, music, book, or movie. You grace us with, uh, with a song, and uh, it's usually the highlight. Uh, of our <laughs> yeah. season, uh, when we have uh, Vin Bonventry uh, serenading us. Well, what you're saying, David, of course, is forget about everything else that I've yeah. waxed and waned about. The only thing we really wait for is Bonventry to tell us something ridiculous. Okay. We're going to have you, you on a couple more times, and then we're just going to do an episode of you singing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking about that, and I decided this because because of something happened with an army buddy of mine. But, uh, you know, so, so I volunteer for the service for the army and I volunteer for Vietnam, but 
after they send me through OCS, they make me an officer. President Nixon actually cancels my company's orders for Vietnam. And instead, they send me to Fort Huachuca, which is in Arizona, this gorgeous fort, which is the military intelligence center. But it's an old cavalry post. So I had horses there. I had horses and I would ride like a lunatic all the time. And then after that first tour in the service, when I came back to New York uh, to law school, before every single exam, I would just blast a John Denver song about being a cowboy. You know that song? I believe you, you so. You do know that song? I think so, yeah. I think I'd rather be a cowboy. Think I'd rather ride the range. I'd rather live on the side of a mountain than wander through canyons of concrete and steel. My wife would just love that. She'd love for me to retire and for us to do that. But yeah, I blasted that at, before every exam in law school. You know, uh, you sang that with such passion. I think really you might have made a mistake and maybe you should have been a cowboy, quite honestly. Always wanted to be a cowboy <laughs> growing up, still do. <laughs> the cowboy of the law, Professor Vin Von Ventry. Thank you for being with us on Miranda Warnings. It's always so great to be with you, David. Thank you so much for inviting me. If you like Miranda Warnings, you have the right to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.